Let's pray. Father, your gospel is the good news. And the good news is that we get you, that we get eternal joy, pleasure, and satisfaction in your presence in a way that we have yet to experience in this life. And so, as we explore elements of your gospel, I pray that you would soften our hearts to the gospel, that you'd help us understand the power of the gospel, that if we're already saved and we already understand what the gospel is, that you would help us see how that gospel becomes even more powerful every day in our life as believers. And I pray for those who don't know the gospel, that they would hear it and believe it, that people like Marianne, would hear the gospel and believe. And I pray for her specifically that you would turn her heart away from herself and to Christ and that you would save her. And I pray now that your word would show us how amazing your gospel continues to work in our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen. Now, the gospel does many things in our lives other than just save us, obviously. What good is the gospel to us if it doesn't first save us? And once it does, it has a continual impact on our life. I think oftentimes we think of the gospel as this past thing that we believed. We still believe it, but it's just it's like that moment, that, that message that we, used, that we believed at one point, we still believe it today, but like its effect for us is kind of in the past. It's still applied to us until we go to heaven, but you know, it's really that, that message that's for people who don't believe. It's not really the same. I'm, I'm past the gospel. I think we tend to think that way. Like the gospel's old, old news. It's good news, great news, but for me, I'm, I'm deeper than that now. I'm further than that. I've, I've come further than the gospel now. But all the things you learn and all the truths you believe since believing the gospel are only relevant and powerful and meaningful if they are related to, connected to the gospel itself. So the gospel has just this endless impact and work in our lives. So there's many things that the gospel does other than just save us. But there is something that the gospel will never do. Change. The gospel will never change. C.J. Mahaney wrote a book called The Cross-Centered Life. And in this book, as he talks about the gospel, this is what he says about the gospel. If it's new, it's not true. And if it's true, it's not new. Because there is no new gospel. And the true gospel is old news. It's still good news, but it's thousands of years old. And over the course of time, especially in the last 2,000 years since Christ, since Scripture was written, we have seen and heard several, several heresies. Heresy is a false teaching, a false doctrine, or a false gospel. And we've seen and heard many false gospels. 
The most significant false gospel in human history is that Jesus Christ is not God. So the most attacked element of the gospel in the history of humanity is the deity of Christ. But that's not what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at Galatians 1 and see what false gospel crept into that church and what that means for us today. When we think about what the gospel is, and Paul t- uses the word gospel in Galatians 1, what he's referring to, um, and we, we could say the gospel is lots of different things, right? And I, you've heard me say this from the pulpit before, God is the gospel because the good news is that you get God, right? Or the gospel has this kind of impact in my life. And so the gospel has different works and different applications in our lives. <clears throat> and, and you could say the gospel is Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. That's the gospel, The revelation of God. When Paul uses the word gospel in Galatians 1, he is talking about that same gospel that we tell you to go share with your neighbor. That you are a sinner, separated from God by your sin, and that God, by his grace and in his love, sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for your sins and rose from the grave, and that if you believe it, you will be saved. That's the gospel Paul's talking about. The message that people need to hear in order to be saved. And that gospel message is what we call justification by faith. So this is important to understand because this is the counter argument to the issue in Galatia. Justification is a biblical term. And it's a term that defines this moment when God counts us as not guilty and gives to us Jesus' righteousness. When we are justified, is that moment when God slams his gavel down and says, not guilty, your sin is applied to my son who dies on the cross with your sin, and his righteousness is transferred to you. Martin Luther called it the great exchange. Jesus takes our sin and gives us his perfection. That's really unfair to Jesus. Like, we totally benefit from that, completely. And Christ gets what? Death. And gives us his perfection that we don't deserve. That's grace. And that's all we need to believe. And we need to believe it. And believing it is faith. You can't believe it without the gift of faith. So Romans 3.26 says that God is the justifier. Meaning, the Lord is our judge. That's a quote from Psalm 75.7. And God, as our judge, when he slams down that gavel with the final verdict of you are not guilty, what it means is you're not guilty by the blood and sacrifice of Jesus, and that's our justification. And how do we get that not guilty verdict? By faith. So by believing the gospel, we're justified, and there is no other means to justification other than faith, belief. Works do not earn your justification. Good behavior doesn't earn your justification. The right attitude doesn't earn your justification. The desire to be saved but still not have faith doesn't earn your justification. We do not work to be justified. We simply believe and belief is caused by faith. Romans 5.1 says this. Since we have been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Romans 3.28 tells us, 
For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now this is the issue or the problem with the gospel in first century Galatia. They began to believe a gospel that justification was by faith and works of the law, which Paul says in Romans 3.28 is not what justification is. That it is by faith apart from works of the law. And in Galatia, they added works of the law back in. And I'll show you how and why. So we're in Galatians 1, verses 6 and 7. And Paul writes, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And what is interesting about this text is how early it appears in the letter. In all of Paul's letters, he begins with an introduction. And it's very similar to the introduction we get here in verses 1 through 5. It's like, hey, I'm Paul, I'm an apostle, or I'm a servant or slave of Christ. And to the churches in whatever city or town he's writing to, grace and peace to you from our God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. That, that kind of introduction, similar in all of Paul's letters. And then immediately after that, Paul does something in every single letter except for the letter to the Galatians. He gives every church some sort of praise or commendation. Now, if you think about that, look at the Corinthians. If you rode this ride with us through 1 Corinthians for three and a half years and you understand how terrible this church was, how sinful they were, how messed up their behavior was, how screwed up their theology was, how their knowledge didn't match truth and then that, mis, that, that misinformed knowledge became poor sinful behavior and practice in their lives. And Paul writes to this church and says, brothers, loved by God, I give thanks to God for you for all your good things. And you're like, what, the Corinthians? Really? Are the churches in Galatia as bad as Corinth? No. Not in behavior. Much better in behavior. Much more righteous in their attitude. Much more giving and faithful. A much better church. And Paul doesn't even give them a second of commendation or praise. He jumps right in to his disappointment in this church. So why no commendation? Why does Paul skip that praise and instead expresses disappointment? The gospel. Paul is showing us, God is showing us, how important the gospel is to the church. The Corinthians at least believed and continued to believe the same gospel. Regardless of their behavior, the gospel was right. The Galatians had good behavior, but their gospel started to get skewed and twisted. And Paul had no room and no time for commendation when the gospel is on the line. So he jumps right into it. Now, in, verses, in verse 6, there are two troubling verbs. Two verbs that are trouble. And then in verse 7, there are two threatening verbs. Okay, so let's look at, let's look at the two Troubling verbs in verse 6. Those verbs are deserting and turning. The Galatians had deserted the one true gospel and turned to a different gospel. 
To which Paul clarifies that there is not actually a different gospel. There's only one real gospel. But they're turning to something else. They believe the gospel is the gospel, which, which means whatever it is they're turning to is not real. It, it's a false gospel. It's a facade. It's a fake. It's a liar. And just like it is with false gods and people worshiping false gods, whether it's ancient Israel or people today worshiping their sports teams or worshiping another person. We all were not we all, but a lot of people worship false gods and those false gods are not real at all. And a false gospel is not a real gospel. False gospel is any gospel other than the gospel which Paul preached which is justification by faith alone. In verses 8 through 9, Paul clarifies that there is only one gospel, and he says this, But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you, what's that, an angel from heaven? Even if an angel from heaven, or we, the very people who first delivered the message, anybody who has any status or authority preaches to you a different gospel, contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And then he repeats it. And this repetition is Paul's way, this immediate repetition is Paul's way of adding emphasis and clarity to what he's saying. As we have said before, and now I say, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. Now that Greek word for accursed, which is used twice in this text, it means object of a curse. So, those who preach a false gospel are cursed, not blessed, not just mistaken, not just misunderstood, but cursed. That means any additions to the gospel, any subtractions to the gospel, any adjust, adjustments to the gospel, or any other qualifiers that are not in Paul's gospel are a false gospel preached by false teachers and preachers whom are cursed. So, what caused the Galatians to desert and the gospel and turn to a false gospel? Well, we find out in verse 7 where we see our two threatening verbs. The threatening verbs are trouble and distort. There were some people who crept into the church as false teachers, and they troubled the Galatians by distorting the true gospel. And this distortion of the true gospel was a specific heresy that is called syncretism. Now, syncretism is the blending of the Mosaic law, which is like the Old Testament law, blending the Old Testament Mosaic law with the true gospel. And people who taught syncretism are false teachers called Judaizers. So these Judaizers, interesting thing about them, they did not reject the life, the death, or the resurrection of Jesus. They affirmed the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for sins. They taught that, they preached that, and they proclaimed that part of the gospel. But they added to it. They added that to be genuinely saved, you must follow that Mosaic law in addition to believing the gospel of Christ. So think about 
that application to our lives today, that we've got false teachers and preachers in the New Testament time period who would affirm and believe and preach and teach the life, the perfect life of Christ, the sinfulness of man, the need for faith in Christ, his death for your sins, his resurrection from the grave, his conquering of sin and death, and your need to believe by faith in Christ. They would affirm all those things. And if you had anybody stand at this pulpit and tell you that, you would think that that person is a believer. They're saved. If you walked up to somebody you knew and you asked them, do you believe that you're a sinner? Yes. Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins? Yes. Do you believe that he rose from the grave? Yes. Are you saved? Yes. You would say, that person's saved. They understand the gospel. It's a warning to us. Don't be so quick to believe that just because someone agrees with elements of our gospel that they're saved. I also don't think you should run around every person who professes faith in Christ should be like, nah, I don't know about you. Pastor Mark told me not to believe people who confess the gospel of Jesus. Like, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is time will tell. Genuine believers will, in faithfulness, adhere to the fullness of the gospel. All the elements of the gospel. And that gospel will come to life in their life and produce Fruit and righteousness. And those who are not genuinely saved, though they proclaim certain elements of the gospel, will not stand the test of time. So we need to be careful. Because it's very easy to just assume someone's a believer based on a couple confessions. This is why in the New Testament, when Paul gives qualifications for elders, he says they cannot be a recent convert. An elder has to be someone who has stood the test of time and has proven through fruit and through righteousness that they are genuinely saved. Because people who get saved right away, I've seen this a thousand times, with people I personally know in my life who I watch get saved. I've led people to the Lord, sat with teenagers and prayed the gospel with them and they confessed their sin and believed in Christ and, and, and they started going to church and singing worship music and doing Bible studies until a couple years later and all of a sudden they're like, I'm not interested in that anymore. And I just say, you never were. It's really easy to just assume that because people look like Christians that they are Christians. And that's the problem with these Judaizers. And this is what Paul warns them against. So these Judaizers had finagled their way into the church to teach this syncretic false gospel This idea of syncretism is like, you know, synchronizing two beliefs, Judaism and the true gospel. It was a way for Jews who still believed in the Mosaic law, who were not genuinely saved because they're false preachers and heretics. It was their way of still getting these new Christians, this new Christianity that's floating around with this Messiah Jesus that everyone's starting to believe in. Is our way, is their way to kind of find those Christians and say, you know what? You're never going to believe in Judaism again. So let me give it, let me make it palatable for you and say, sure, I believe and confirm your gospel. And I'm going to sync up your gospel with the Messiah and add to it my gospel of Judaism. And then you believe that and then you'll be saved. So you have to do both. So that's that idea of syncretism. And the Galatians fell for it. So what is it about the Galatians falling for syncretism that makes Paul say in verse 6, I am 
astonished. That Greek word astonished is an expression of incredible surprise. Right? I mean, think about like when you hear in the news, some guy commits some heinous, terrible crime or murder or something. And what do all his friends and family say? I never knew, I never would have guessed he'd do this. They're just so surprised. I mean, imagine how surprised you'd be if you found out your spouse had a completely separate life from you, hidden and secret, and they were doing all kinds of just crazy things. You'd be like, what? I'm astonished. I'm so surprised. And that's how Paul feels. He's like, how could you turn from this gospel that you proclaim and believe? He still calls them brothers. He's not saying the church are full of false converts, but he's warning them. There's a curse coming for those who don't believe. So what is it about this situation that makes Paul so astonished? I think there's context we need to add to what Paul's writing that we get from the book of Acts that helps us understand his astonishment. Now Galatia was not a city. It was not a town. It was a province. It was an area that included several cities. And uh, Paul wrote this letter to the Galatians. And this letter went to four cities that contained churches. And those four cities were Lystra, Antioch, Iconium, and Derbe. So that's Lystra, Antioch, Iconium, and Derbe. You can find this in Acts 14. To give you like a, what's that called? An acronym, L-A-I-D, LAID. Lystra, Antioch, Iconium, and Derbe. That'll help you memorize it. So this heresy of syncretism had spread wide and was starting to infect several cities, at least four, if not more, cities and churches. But it is what happened when Paul was in Galatia that leads to his astonishment. In Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas are in Lystra. And while they're in Lystra, they heal a crippled man. And all the people in Lystra hear about this. And they're blown away. They're amazed. And they're religious people. They're, I should, they're not saved, but they're religious. They're spiritual. They believe in the gods. There's a lot of false worship going on. They see anything miraculous and they think, oh, that's one of the gods. And so when Paul and Barnabas heal this crippled man, they hear about it and the crowds flood the streets and they start worshiping Paul and Barnabas and they bring gifts and, and the, the, the leader of the temple of Zeus, the priest of the temple of Zeus, brings out offerings and sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas, calling them gods because they think that Paul is Zeus. And when Paul and Barnabas hear about this, they come running to the crowds and they get in the midst of the crowds and they literally tear their clothes off of their body in absolute lament and they cry out in Acts 14, 15 and they say, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things like worshiping men to a living God. So the crowds listened, or the crowds didn't listen to Paul or Barnabas or their lament or their claim that we are not a God. We are not gods. And the, the crowds just continue to worship the apostles until somebody changed their minds. It was the Jews. The Jews hear about this. The Jews get all upset. They're like, ah, those, the Christian Paul, who was on our side before, 
He was killing Christians like he ought to be. And now he's out there preaching the gospel. And now we got all the people worked up, focused on Paul and how he's a God. And Paul's sitting there saying, oh, I'm not a God. Let's go convince those people that he isn't a God. Let's tell them he's a false teacher. So the Jews show up and convince the crowd that Paul and Barnabas were false teachers. And what they convince them is that Paul is teaching a false gospel which includes Christ or the Messiah, which is the counter to the very Mosaic law that those same Jews would bring to Galatia as a false gospel. And these Jews convince the crowds that they should stone Paul to death. So what do the crowds do? They pick up rocks. And they stone Paul nearly to death. They beat him so badly that they literally believed he was dead. I mean, consider how beaten you have to be for someone to think you're genuinely dead. Now, I don't know medically that if in the first century they knew that if you put your fingers right here, you could find a pulse or not. Maybe they did. Maybe they didn't. I don't know. In the TV shows that I watch today that are about that time period, they do, but you can't believe everything you see on TV. I have no idea. If they would have put a Paul, their finger on Paul's pulse, I have no idea. It had to have been weak. He didn't appear to be breathing, but he was still alive. And as was the custom in the time, what you do with a dead body that was stoned to death because this person committed a crime, they're a criminal, that's why they were stoned to death, regardless of whether it went through the legal system or if it was just an anxious crowd, they drag this dead body outside the city walls and leave it outside the city walls like a bag of garbage for wild animals and birds to eat. Pretty gross. Think about how gross Paul had to have looked for them to consider this man is dead. And the Jews are thinking, yay, we killed Paul. And the unbelievers in Lystra are like, yay, we killed a false teacher. And the apostles come outside the city walls and they surround their, Paul friend, their, their friend Paul and all of a sudden, Paul gets up. And imagine you're Paul's friend. At this point, you're probably thinking, hey, dude, oh my goodness, you're alive? Dude, we need to get you to a doctor. You need some rest, some water, some healing. You just And Paul's like, no, we're going to Derby right now. Der to do what in Derby? There's no doctors in Derby, Paul. No, we're going to Derby to preach the gospel. Paul, 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 Paul. Chill out, dude. You were, we thought you were dead. You need to rest. Paul's like, no, we need to preach the gospel in Derby. Okay, so then Paul gets up, goes to Derby, preaches the gospel. All right, you're Paul's friend, right? Okay, Paul, we're done in Derby. I get it. Yay, super apostle Paul, you're so amazing. You are almost dead, but you're still preaching the gospel. Take a break, dude. Go to a doctor now. Get some rest. Paul's like, no, 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 no. Now we go back to Lystra. Paul, hold on. Lystra is where they tried to kill you. And Paul's response is in Acts 14.22 because Paul had to go back to Lystra because he understood the implications of the gospel. He understood the significance and the weight of what just happened in Lystra. He preached the gospel there and there were people who believed and Paul went back to Lystra with the purpose of Acts 14.22 strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. These very people who heard the gospel, believed the gospel, 
and watched Paul almost die for the gospel had seen with their own eyes the power of the gospel at work in Paul's life. Paul didn't just preach the gospel. Paul lived the gospel. Paul was stoned for the gospel. Paul seemingly died for the gospel. And if there was any evidence that the gospel is valid and true and worthy of death, Paul was that example. He lived the gospel by his willingness to sacrifice his own life as a testimony for others so that they could hear the gospel, believe the gospel, and so that they could be saved. And with such a powerful testimony, Paul returned to Lystra to strengthen the believers. That's how much Paul cared for the church. He should have rested. He said, there's no time for rest. There are believers in need. Those same believers, those people in Lystra, there were crowds who stoned me near the death, but there are believers in that town. And what they killed me. They tried to kill me in Lystra. What do you think they're going to do to the faithful believers in Lystra? They're going to try to kill them too. We have to go back for them because they're not nearly as strong in the faith as I, Paul, am. So we need to strengthen them. That's the power of the gospel that Paul shows them. So Paul would be amazed When he shows up in Lystra, and there are people who are still believing the gospel, but then he leaves and finds out they've abandoned that gospel. Because when Paul gets back to Lystra in uh, Acts 14.23 says they had appointed elders for them in every church. With prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. So when Paul leaves Lystra the second time, when he leaves Galatia, with, there's a solid church intact, led by godly men and filled with faithful followers. So when Paul hears later that the Galatians are turning to a syncretic gospel, a false gospel, a heresy, he says, I am astonished! Is my life not a living testimony of the power of the gospel? What else has a guy got to do to show you the validity and the power of the gospel that you believe in? And you turn from it to listen to the very people who stoned me for the gospel that you claim to believe? How? I'm surprised. I'm astonished. It's unbelievable. What else can a guy do? There's not much else a guy can do, and hence Paul's astonishment. So, that's a great story, right? Awesome story of the power of the gospel and what the gospel is and what that means to Paul, but it also gives us and enlightens our perception of what Paul is saying to the Galatians. Now we understand why when Paul writes this, he says, what are you guys doing? What Paul's desire is here, his priority in this letter to the Galatians is to do one primary thing. I want you to write this, if you're taking notes, write this down. His desire in Galatia is to preserve the purity of the gospel. To preserve the purity of the gospel. And the purity of the gospel means the one true gospel without any additions or subtractions, but only the solid biblical truth that justification is by faith alone. Not works, not the law, not the gospel plus works or gospel plus the law or anything else. 
Not a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Not a gospel that you should be healed. Not a gospel that if you speak in tongues, that's the true gospel. Not that. Not any addition to the gospel. Just the one true gospel. Justification by faith alone. And though syncretism, I think, today is rearing its ugly head in American churches, I don't want to talk about that on a bigger scale. I don't want to talk about the intrusion of the Old Testament law finding its way into churches and into the gospel. I want to talk to you on a little more specific and personal level of application of this text. There's no one in this room that I have heard say or believe that you believe that any of you are following the law. I haven't heard that from any of you. If I did, I would talk to you, just warning you. We would have a conversation. We will not allow that. Uh, it, it, there's a movement called the Hebrew Roots Movement where there are people who claim to be Christians and then are also saying, well, I'm a believer and I believe in Christ and I trust Christ for my salvation. It's gospel only, Christ only. I'm not saved by the Old Testament law, but I do want to live by the Old Testament law. And later in Galatians, Paul says, if you want to live by that law, you will die by that law. Because the law is a curse. You want to live by that law. You can claim faith in Christ, but you run back to that law for any of its elements. You are running to the curse. And you are cursed. And that's why Christ died for your sins, to bear that curse. And then Paul quotes in Galatians, cursed is the man who dies on a tree, because Christ took your curse. So don't run back. And then in chapter 5 of Galatians, Paul says, so don't run back to the yoke of slavery. That's the law. Stop returning to the law. Now that's happening in America. It's happening in churches. It happened to a church in our city, in our town, in our community. People started showing up and trying to live by the Old Testament law. It's a false gospel. But what does it have to do with us? I don't see anyone here living that or proclaiming that or trying to live by that or trying to revive any elements of the Old Testament law in your Christian life. But I do think that we struggle. So this is, this is what I, I want you to take home. I think we do struggle with letting syncretism leak into our life little, little bits at a time, little drops at a time. We would never say out loud that works are required for us to be saved or to stay saved. But I think sometimes we can live as if they are. So let me ask you some questions. How do you feel after you sin? Do you feel as if you've disappointed God? Do you feel like God is upset with you? Have you broken his heart? Now that you've sinned and you feel like God is upset with you, does that affect your relationship with God? Is it harder to pray now knowing that God knows? Is it harder to study or read scripture now knowing that God knows? Do you now feel shame? And do you now feel guilt? I would be willing to bet that every single Christian in this room at some point has sinned and then immediately felt guilt or shame, if not both. Maybe you're beyond that now. I want to be like you. I really do. Because when I sin, I fall into syncretism. I fall into legalism. If you feel guilt 
and you feel shame, and you feel like, I've ruined my relationship with God, I'm damaged, my relationship with God is damaged, my fellowship with God is wrecked, me and God are not at peace with each other. If I have any of those, my, my, what you're saying there is legalism. That your relationship with God is predicated on your behavior. That is a false gospel. Here's the thing. Your relationship with God was never predicated on your behavior. It is... And it always was predicated on Jesus. That's the gospel. That's what Paul is fighting for. A gospel message that you are not only justified by faith alone, not by your works, but that you remain justified in Christ forever. That it is Jesus Christ whose death and resurrection remains for you the application of your continued salvation. That not, you weren't saved by your works. And we would all say, therefore you can't stay saved by your works. And I would even add, you can't get unsaved by your works. You are sealed. That's Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. That you are sealed in the Holy Spirit and is a guarantee of your eternity. Now, I assume that most of us here, especially if you were here about a year ago when I preached a five-week uh, five series on can you lose your salvation, and the conclusion was obvious from John chapter 6, John chapter 10, and Hebrews chapter 6, that it is you cannot lose your salvation if you're genuinely saved. And I assume that most of us here believe that, that your salvation is guaranteed, you can't lose it. But I'm not just talking about your position in Christ that keeps you saved for eternity. I'm not just talking about, hey, when you die, if you're genuinely saved, when you die, you'll go to heaven. I'm talking about how your position in Christ feels today. What it means for you today. What is applied to you. What about the gospel comes to life for you in this moment, this afternoon, when you sin? When guilt and shame and condemnation cloud over you like a hovering wrath that you look up and you don't see the real God. You see an angry God who's ready to cast you out, to look down on you and, and, and punish you. Or at best, discipline me, but he wants to hurt me for my sin. He's not happy with me. He's turned his back on me. He's upset with me. He's disappointed in me. None of that's true. It's not in the Bible. The only element we find in the Bible of that kind of mentality from God is when Paul says in Ephesians 4, do not grieve the Holy Spirit because the Spirit aches at our sin. But the gospel is immediately, constantly, endlessly applied to our position in Christ. The gospel has preserved your joy in Christ, even in your sin. That's the beauty of the gospel, that it is an immediate application in the midst of your sin. And legalism, syncretism says, 
oh, well, there are rules in the Bible, and I have to follow these rules. And the rules say if you sin, that's bad. And if you don't sin, that's good. So i got to work really hard now that I'm a believer. And yeah, I know I'm not saved by my works. But I have to work really hard as a believer to do the right things. And if I don't, because we start creating this works-based mentality, like i got to do good, i got to do good, i got to do good. And we repeat that ourselves, repeat that to ourselves constantly. And because of that mentality, little bit by little bit, we're letting this syncretism, this false gospel creep into our mind that tells us, I got to do good, I got to do good, I got to do good. And with that mentality, the moment we don't do good, which happens probably daily, we go, oh, sorry, God. Oh, you're probably so upset with me. And now it hurts to pray. It's hard to go to God. He knows my sin. I feel very disconnected from God. And God must be distant from me. My relationship with God is damaged. And the gospel says that can't be true. It's not what the gospel is. The gospel is that you are that person. That is the gospel. You are a sinner. You try to work hard. And that is the beauty and the power of the gospel, that it comes to life in your sin. It has no other purpose but your sin. So when we sin, to turn to shame and guilt and condemnation that clouds over our heads, to turn to that is a false gospel. And this is in this in Christ says, no, 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 no. Your sin that you're feeling guilt and shame over should be conviction to look at me and my gospel. That is why I'm here. So I'll give you a little reading. Christian told me to read this book. It's called Gentle and Lowly. I never pick up a book on a Sunday morning and read it while I'm in my office doing my time, but I decided to do it today, and this is what I read. Christ does not get flustered and frustrated when we come to him for fresh forgiveness, for renewed pardon, with distress and need and emptiness. That is the whole point. It's what he came to heal. He went down into the horror of death and plunged out through the other side in order to provide a limitless supply of mercy and grace to his people. Christ gets more joy and comfort than we do when we come to him for help and mercy. In the same way that a loving husband gets more relief and comfort in his wife's healing than in his own. Christ brings into himself more comfort than it procures to them when he sees our sins being placed under his own blood. When you come to Christ for mercy and love and help in your anguish and in your perplexity and in your sinfulness, you are going with the flow of his deepest wishes not against them. When we hold back, lurking in the shadows, fearing and failing, we miss out not only on our own increased comfort, but we miss out on Christ's increased comfort. He lives for this. This is what he loves to do. His joy and ours rise and fall together. That's the gospel. The gospel is when you sin, 
come to me. Don't run to shame. Don't run to guilt. What good is the gospel to you if you don't come to me when you sin? Shame and guilt and condemnation are not for the believer. Shame and guilt and condemnation have been murdered and nailed to the cross and they don't exist for the believer. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation from the, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Stop running back to legalism. Stop running back to the law. None of you would ever say, I'm legalistic or I'm running to the law. You just feel guilt and shame. And then you feel like your relationship with God is hurt because of your sin. And he's like, no, 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 no. If your relationship with me was determined by your behavior, we wouldn't have a relationship. Your relationship with me is that you will offend me. You will sin against me. And when you do, that's when I come to a great rescue for you. And that's when my gospel finds its greatest joy and strength. That's when Christ fulfills his most genuine ministry to you, which is to advocate on your behalf in his righteousness. That's what he's made to do. Christ gets his greatest joy in your running to him after sin. So when you sin, which you will, don't run to shame. Don't run to guilt. Don't think that God is looking down. You're like, how dare you? Break my rules. There will be consequences. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible to his believers says, there is no positional change for you. You are mine in Christ, period. Think about it, dads, moms. When your kids sin, no matter how big that sin is, do you just suddenly stop loving them? Are you like, you know what, now that you know you got a 12-year-old and they sin against you and they do something bad, are you going to be like, all right, you're out of my house. No, we don't have a relationship anymore. <laughs> That's like child abuse, right? How much more? Jesus even says this in Matthew 6. How much more would your father in heaven take care of you than an earthly father takes care of his own child? How much more is a good God going to be good to you? And how much greater is a great gospel going to be applied to your sin? I am telling you, church, when you sin, which you will, run to the gospel. That's why it's there. We live in the condemnation that we create for ourselves, and it is a false gospel. It is a heresy, and it is a lie from Satan, because it is Satan's trick to tell you, feel bad about this. And the gospel says, you can't feel bad about it, because that bad feeling was nailed to the cross. We live in freedom. That's why Paul says in Galatians 5.1, don't return to the yoke of slavery. Don't return to the law. Don't return to that legalism. Why? Because you are free. Free from condemnation, free from guilt, free from sin. And that is the power of the gospel. It doesn't just tell you, come running to me where you find comfort and peace and no shame and no guilt. But also, shame and guilt will never help you walk, take a step forward in continued grace and goodness and righteousness. Shame and guilt will only lead you to greater shame and guilt, to a deeper false gospel and to a worse life. 
What the gospel does, when you turn to the gospel after saying, what it shows you is the goodness and the grace of God to overcome your sin once again, and it will be applied to every sin forever that you ever commit. That is the power and the beauty of the gospel. And what that understanding of God's incredible grace does for you is it tells you, I am in Christ, and though I have just sinned, I will take the next step forward in God's faithfulness, in God's goodness, and in the righteousness of Christ that has been purchased for me that is a far greater motivator the gospel is a much better motivator toward righteousness than shame and guilt and condemnation could ever produce you want to not sin anymore then turn to the gospel when you do now if there's anything in you that is hearing oh i guess it's okay to sin i mean what good is the gospel if i don't sin might as well sin this is what john says in 1 John 2.1, my little children, I am writing these things to you, why? So that you may not sin. That's the goal. But, now John is aware of humanity, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That is the gospel. The gospel keeps us from sin, but when we sin anyways, the gospel reminds us that the righteousness of Jesus Christ that is ours advocates on our behalf, declares to God, you are, they are positioned in Christ. When God looks at you, he sees his son, Jesus Christ, the perfect righteousness of Christ. He doesn't look down and say, oh, I've got a wicked little child, don't I? Better spank that boy. Well, Hebrews 12, he does spank us sometimes. We do need some discipline. But it's why. Why, does it, why is it? What does Hebrews 12 say about discipline? Whom does he discipline? Those whom he loves. Like a good father. Which tells us that we are loved. That's our position. That's the beauty of the gospel. God cannot look at us and think, ugh. He looks and he goes, oh. All I see is you standing next to me wearing the perfect white gown of righteousness that, is per that was purchased by Jesus Christ, my son. You are a pleasure to God. Such a pleasure to God that Zephaniah 3.17 says that God spends his time every day, all day, singing over you. Think about that, moms and dads. You ever have a baby? Yeah? Trying to put them to bed and you're holding them? What do you do? You're like, I love you, you love... I don't know what you sing to your kids. I, don't know. <laughs> I sing Christian rap songs to my kids, but you guys probably don't. <laughs> what, you love your child and to bring them peace and comfort to pour that love into them. It's got to come out. You, you, you feel it, and so you sing over them. That's what God, God loves you so much. He just like, oh, he just holds you. He's like, I love you so much. I love you so much. I don't know what song God sings, and it probably sounds better than my voice. I can tell you that much. That is the beauty and the power of the gospel, that you are always positioned in God's love. Stop turning to shame and guilt. Stop running to legalism. It's a false gospel. Start turning to the true gospel. Where you will find freedom, joy, and peace that covers your sin when you sin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the goodness of your gospel, that in Christ we are free. Help us turn to you in our sin.
so that we would find in you joy, peace, and comfort, and the power of your gospel come to life, so that in that way, we would continue to preserve the purity of the gospel in the church. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.